if your Bibles, if you've been with us the last 10 weeks, then, and you bring your Bible, which I encourage you to do so you can get familiar with it, then it's starting to look like mine already, right? Your pages are all wrinkled up, and that's, that's what you get when you spend so much time in three pages, and we haven't even turned the page yet. The letter of James is in three pages, and it's just been so rich and good. So today we're in week 11 of this series we're calling Faith at Work. So grab your Bibles with me. If you didn't bring one and you want to follow along, we have them in the back, as Leslie mentioned. Uh, James is in the very back of your Bible after Hebrews before First Peter. And uh, what a joy it's been to have James encouraging and shaping. God has blessed us with his written word. And uh, much to do this morning. Uh, I thought I would get through two full verses, and first hour I proved to not be able to do that. So um, I'll, I'll give you the same sermon I gave them so that we can pick up at the same place next week. Um, praise God. God's word is good. Look with me at verse 26 and 27 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is growing progressively a more practical application of how we not only receive God's word, as he spoke about in verse 21, but be doers of the word, as we saw in verse 22, to do what it says. Here in verse 26 and 27, we see James give three points of application for how we are, who we who are of faith are to work out that faith and be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you missed last week's sermon, you probably should find an hour somewhere in your week to fire up our podcast on our website and get your Bible out. And because that text that we looked at last week is really fundamental for where James is going to go in the rest of his letter. Um, the words we see here, religious, verse 26, and religion in verse 27, are rare in the New Testament, believe it or not. When we see them used, usually they're in reference to a general practice of ceremony of worship or dedication to God, or a God, religion in general. We see this in Acts 26.5, Colossians 2.18, and other places. Religion, at its most simple, is man's pursuit of God or man's worship of God, the one true God, or worship of a little g God, false God. So it's general application. That word religion is wide, and sometimes it means something really specific, and sometimes it means other things. Um, it, just the word religion opens the door for us to consider all that the world says about different religions and different gods. And so it's maybe important just to pause real quick today as we jump in to recognize again what God's word, authoritative word, says about this topic. Number one, that there is only one true God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. We see this all throughout Scripture. A few places in specific. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. 
besides me, there is no God. Pretty straightforward. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The scriptures are also very clear. There's not many ways to God, as the world wants to boast and proclaim in their arrogance and lostness. James 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no coexist movement if the T, if the cross, remains part of that word and that idea. Simply based on the teachings of Jesus himself. That there is no coexistence. There is no other way. You remove the T and then what you have works. It's all false religion. It's all man-made gods and ideas. With these bold truths in mind, think about the world's religions. Think about the history of man. All the ways that man has derived or conceived in sin to create or worship false gods. Think about all the false religions that actually include in them biblical principles or even sometimes biblical truths, but they add to these things untrue man-made ideas or revelations or teachings that are not authoritative or not from the one true God. All of these wicked perversions of the truth we, we must identify as just that. God is truth. God is life. God is love. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all, the Scriptures teach us. There can be no other, nor will God give His glory to another. All worship, therefore, all ceremony and dedication, if not to the one true God, is a lie, is a deception. If it's going to be pure, and unstained, it must be to the one true God. This is why James' use of the word religion here is so poignant. He's saying man-made religion is all around us. It is a broken way for man to attempt to earn God's favor, to practice ceremony to a false God. But pure or true religion True worship of the one true God looks like this. That's where he's going. He's saying real faith, saving faith, is lived out this way. Faith at work looks like this. This is James' aim in his letter. If you've sat under my preaching for any length of time, then you know I, I like to use religion in contrast to gospel. So I typically use it in its more negative form. James is going to use it in a positive, trying to claim true religion, true worship and ceremony to God looks like this. To speak of the way I often use it is it's just in that light of man-made religion or um, the ways that we, mankind, have kind of derived to think like, this is what's going to do me some good. So things like this. And, and this is how fine the line is between man-made religion and gospel renewal. 
Good things like attending church services, serving in the church or in the community, following prescribed rituals of faith, sharing about Jesus to others, being faithful to study and pray. Now hear me clearly. Have no true spiritual value in and of themselves apart from the sovereign work of God to give you new birth and true saving faith in Jesus Christ. You you must confess your sin and trust your life to Christ as Lord if anything you're going to do is going to truly honor God. Apart from faith in God, the scriptures say, everything is sin. You must know Jesus as he's revealed himself with true saving faith. To not know him in that way is to not be saved. It's to not have God. Jesus himself speaks to this in maybe the most sobering passage in all of Scripture. Speaking of that day by which many will stand before him and discover that they're not truly his. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21-23. He says very boldly, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's an an evidence of true faith that equals a, a real doing and not just a hearing. But there's also a doing that's not linked to faith, that's damning, and that's where he's going to speak of next. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? It looks like they're religious. It looks like they're doing good things. And then I will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The fine line between man-made practices or efforts to earn God, have God, be good with God, and true faith, to trust your life to Jesus, to, be, to die to yourself and live to Christ with true Holy Spirit conviction and desire to do the things of God, to obey the Word of God. The Gospel says that God's chosen people are accepted by God's grace and the perfect work of Jesus alone. The result of this is new life in Christ and an obedient life to Christ, a maturity, a sanctification. That's what the Scriptures point to. Fine line can be differentiated this way. It's been said well this way. Really, really ponder this with me, and I think you'll get the point. Man made religion, pursuit of God, says this I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But pure religion, true worship of God, knowing God, the gospel, says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And and the difference between those two is is everything. One is man-made religion, works, efforts to try to get God apart from Christ alone, with the idea that God will accept those good works as good enough. The scriptures declare that cannot be we must be born again. We must, be, we must have true faith in God. 
to then therefore joyfully, authentically, ongoingly obey and honor him. And this is good news for many. I love how much God's done this in our church. If, if you're here today and you grew up in religion, you grew up in the church or maybe had a season of going to church, and you, and you kind of think, I had to do certain things to, to be good with God. And you still just your general mindset. Some people even still think, hey, I prayed the prayer, and they kind of wrap that up in there. But they're still just living out religion. They still don't really get the gospel. They're still not transformed by the gospel to make them new. The good news of Jesus Christ, according to his holy word, is that for those whom God chooses, who those who are undeserving sinners in every way, we've done nothing to earn his grace, only by his amazing grace and salvation, based on Jesus' work alone and God's holy will, can you obey him joyfully, truly, ongoingly, and honor him with your lips? James is going to help us see three areas of our lives where our obedience to him flows out of true salvation. Our doing his word plays out in practical ways. And so he's going to bring that for us today. Look with me again at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The idea that true faith, or what James calls today in this verse, pure religion, is lived out in active and lasting obedience is really the emphasis of the rest of his letter. He's going to show us how faith remains at work. True faith. In the context of being doers of the word, as we saw last week, and not hearers only, James is now going to focus on what some of that doing looks like. A doing that's the result of salvation, not a doing trying to earn salvation. We, we like to set aside some of the things he's going to point out here. And so I, I've been praying for real conviction for us today. Um, that we would embrace them. Um, and see how potent these things are to our testimony in Christ. Especially for a watching world. Church, one of the biggest ways you do what the word says and honor God with your life. Is to use your words, your tongue. For his glory. And not for your flesh or not for your agenda. James uses the word bridle here. To bridle the tongue. To describe how we would steward or manage or use our tongue or our words in this life. A bridle is used to control an animal and to dictate its direction. So James is trying to emphasize that both control and direction of our tongue and our words is a critical part of doing what God has called us to in his word. It is part of the evidence of true faith in him, sanctification in our lives, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, a living out of our faith and putting it to work in an ongoing way that honors God. Paul speaks to it this way. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
James goes so far to say that the person who doesn't exercise control and God-honoring direction with their words is deceiving in their heart. They're deceived in their heart to think that they truly belong to God. Hear his words. These are not light words. He says that their religion, their worship or devotion to God, is worthless. Wow. I mean, that's a huge indictment. I mean, this should be very sobering for all who hear it. Why? Because all too many are guilty of thinking that, hey, well, I'm good with God. I'm part of his eternal family. I'm part of the church. But are completely oblivious to how unbridled your tongue is, how unbridled your testimony is, and the words that come from your mouth. Revealing, as James is saying here, potentially that your heart is unbridled, that you're, that you're spiritually dead still. Worthless is not a small word. Saying the evidence of true saving faith is maturity and sanctification in this area of your life. Jesus himself is going to emphasize this. Matthew 15, 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A check for the state of your true heart and walk with God and knowing God is what comes out of your mouth. It goes so far, and I'll ask you this. Do you know on the day of judgment, everyone will be held accountable for every word that came out of their mouth? Matthew 12, 36-37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Praise God for those of us who truly not superficially, but truly testify that Jesus is Lord. For by His blood alone can we be redeemed. Can we be forgiven? Do we have any hope before the Holy God in the judgment of every word I've ever said? Right? Desperate for Him. But a result of knowing Him, of being transformed by Him, is a life and a witness that changes and that matures. In other words, church, our words matter. They're, they're an active part of our testimony. They, they tell people who we belong to. They reveal our true character, our true identity with Christ. To say you love God, but then to use that same mouth to curse others or blasphemy His name does not add up. go so far to say is hypocritical. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. James is trying to wake up his listeners to the potent reality that you're deceived to think that you believe in Jesus and are part of his eternal family, and yet there's no change. There's no transformation. There's no sanctification in the way you speak. No conviction for what comes out of your mouth. The true the truly saved will be doers of the word and not hearers only. Church, if you are saved and set free from your enslavement to sin, 
and now love the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, that you're bought by God's grace. You, if this is you, you have no excuse to have your mouth spew words that are from the toilet and are not a spring of living water that testify Jesus. You, if, if you're alive in Christ, you will not need to satisfy your flesh to just get it out and curse and cut down others in order to somehow feel better about your situation or, or about your identity. Your identity is not in the flesh anymore. You're in Christ. If you're a newer Christian, truly saved, but you grew up in a home of just debauchery, of a generation of sailors, or whatever, I don't mean that a derogatory term, for the true sailors in the room. You know what I mean. All respect to my brother in the front row, served in our Navy. Ah, good one. Or just, maybe you just lived many, many years amidst just wicked people who just spoke just evil and, and just curses were, were, were their vocabulary and putting people down and cutting people down. But you're now saved, truly saved. Then your mouth and your words should be seeing evidence of transformation of maturity. And God-honoring practice and exaltation. You need to stop saying, this is just who I am, this is the way I was raised. That doesn't fly. You were blood-bought by the King of Kings. You're a new person in Christ. Amen? Stop claiming the old self and claim the new. Notice how I say it's not perfection, but there should be maturity. There should be real conviction and confession of sin to not go there. To be accountable, to mature in these areas. Now, if you're mature in your faith, but you still speak words that curse and glorify God's, that curse or glorify God's creation, or even just take His name in vain, then you need to take real inventory today. James says that that your religion, your worship of God, if if this is an ongoing reality, that, that it's worthless. In other words, there might be a sign that you're not truly saved. That out of the, the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and, and maybe, just maybe, it's not that. Maybe you've just simply blatantly been lazy. You've been maybe not quite ignorant because you know with conviction through the Holy Spirit that it's wrong. But you've just still been lazy. And if this is you, then hear the word of God today. Confess it as sin and take up a new path in light of the gospel. We're less concerned about how you did what you did last week. I'm way more concerned about how you're going to do this next week and where you're headed as the truths of God's Word, as the maturity of the Holy Spirit, as the work of God's church is, is upon your life. You can and will transform. I've seen it. You're sitting around people who were different people a long time ago. God's transforming them, making them new. It's, it's, it's happening. Praise God. Now, as much time as I just spent there, I have to stop now. Here's why. 
Because James is going to come back to this topic in a greater way in chapter 3. And that's how significant this is. I mean, it is a major, major thing. And so let me just press on one other layer to it to consider as, as we move on. To truly bridle your tongue is not just to do that when things are going smooth. Some of you have bought into the lie that when things are really bad, it's okay that you're foul-mouthed or that you cut on other people or you yell or take the Lord's name in vain. And I would just say, that's a lie. Because your true character is shown in times of pressure and conflict, not when everything's going good. The true you comes out in those moments. So again, stop excusing it as when the world's getting flipped on its head, then it's okay for you to go there. No, that's a lie. Confess that as sin. Be done with it. To curse or use words that mirror curse words, essentially the same thing. You know the heart of the word you're using. That's the silly thing that our, that our culture finds that acceptable to me. To slander others with gossip, to take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, that is still very culturally confusing. Are you guilty of yelling, oh my God, when a, when a cockroach runs across the room? Do you realize what you're doing in that moment is you're profaning the name of the Lord. Here's the reason why. The word profane means to take something that's holy and sacred and to make it commonplace. So when you throw the name of the Lord, or Jesus Christ, when you're scared, is to throw the holy name of God on the back of a cockroach. I mean, it really is. That's essentially what you're doing. That's essentially what taking the Lord's name in vain is. And so you're just going, man, like, man, I've never really thought about it that way. That is what it is. So in the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word, then just be done with it. It might take you weeks or months to finally get it out of your house. I know that journey of certain practices or things that we've said are okay. But that when we speak the name of God, it would be with reverence and joy and respect and honor to lift His name high and worship Him and exalt His holy name. Now, now some of you probably, if you're honest, are going, all right, pastor, this is getting a little old school, right? Is this really where we're going? And I just say, yeah. The ways that honor God, think of it this way, that they don't change with modern advancements, right? I mean, God is old school, Right? Think about that. There's no one more old school than God. He, he was and is and is to be. But as much as that stands on its own, let me actually show you how it's not old school. It's continuing. It, uh, even our modern culture acknowledges that these things are wrong in how we think about different things. For example, parental reviews for movies or games how many of you parents use parental reviews for movies or games raise your hand yeah similar to first hour all right i love you you've got to start using this tool to put your children or your family even yourselves before a movie that you've not sat to vet first it is to just open up the doors of the world and say just come in and then i'm going to buy a 50 dollars game for my kid i'm not going to vet what content is inside, what they're going to play for hours and hours and hours. So I love you enough, 
but hear it this way. Buy a little less 9mm ammunition and spend a little more time reviewing some parental reviews. Here's why. Because the greatest enemies, men, trying to take your homes is not coming through your front door. It's coming through your internet and through your TV screen. These are the things that are going to pollute your kids' minds and defraud their, their, their souls. All right, that's a different sermon. Sorry, I got, I got caught up in that. Use parental reviews. Please, just Google it. Put in the name of the movie, put parental review, you'll get 18 options. IMDb even gives you a good review. And here's what they'll tell you. They'll tell you the violence. They'll tell you the sexuality or romance. They'll tell you the substance abuse. They'll tell you the language. The obvious stuff, the curse words, the big ones. The little ones, the toilet talk, the crude stuff. And every one of them is going to list for you any use that's not in worship or respect of the name Jesus Christ or God. And every use of it. That's your modern culture still understanding that it's wrong. And thereby, that's why it's still telling you parents that it's there. Right? Not that old school. I pray, church, that we're doers of the word and attentive to our maturing and sanctification of our words. I plead with you to be a people of Christ and heed the instruction of James to bridle your, your tongue, to grow in the Holy Spirit and in the, in the instruction of the word. To heed the words of Paul as he wrote to the church in Colossae when he said in Colossians 3.18, you must then put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. May the true power of God be at work in us in these simple convictions of the Holy Spirit to bring forth a life and a testimony that honors God. Amen? All right. Look with me at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Stop right there. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. And then he's going to talk about some examples of what it looks like. But let's deal with who the audience is first. Before God the Father. So we're about to talk about what this stuff looks like, what devotion and true faith looks like played out, but not based on what we think is worthy of attention and devotion, not even what the world around us or the culture might think is worthy of attention or devotion, but it's a study and and an understanding of what God the Father says is worthy of attention and devotion. That He ultimately is our audience to the pleasure and the glory of God. Not to self as much as You know this. You need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. It's not about you. It's not for others. It's not not for getting others to give you praise. The things we're about to talk about, what faith at work looks like in the doing of God's word, as we're about to talk about these things, we don't do these things because we get praise from man. It's about God. Knowing and being honored. It's doing it to the audience of one. I, I spoke of our need for more hands on deck to just help with cleaning of the campus. And I pray you genuinely consider that today and see Marilyn after she took a break from her vacation to come worship with us again today to, to meet with you and talk that out. 
I go out of my way to uh, find our cleaners who help uh, when they're here during the week. Why? Because it's the most thankless job in the gig, right? You who have kids, you pick up your kids. I hope you're saying thank you to our workers. Um, you know, you come up and you tell the band how much you appreciate their musicianship and all their hard work. And, you know, you, you love me and support me. But, you know, no one's, no one's calling me, hey, pastor, hey, who cleans the toilets? Because I, I want to go say thank you. <laughs> like, no one does that, right? And you hardly even know who they are when they're here. Because it's a thankless job. But you know what? The heart of these people, I love it. One of them on, went on record the other day saying, hey, I, I'm willing to come more days than one. Something about when I'm here cleaning the church, I just know that I'm honoring God. And I love it. And it's like, yes, that's it. Audience of one. You get it. It's not about getting praise from other people. It's not about the fact that people know you and you got recognition. It's about God. He's being honored. If... Any motive to live lives that honor God, we've got to first realize it's got to be for Him. If it's not for Him, then we're idolaters. And then we're doing it for the glory or the recognition of something else. And will you just pause and consider this with me? Christian, if you're truly saved in Jesus is Lord, your life means something. It's valuable. It's, you're important. Because God chose to save you when you were a wicked enemy of his, he chose to adopt you into his forever family. There is, no, there is nothing greater that can be said to the world than that. I don't care how many national championships you've earned or how much money's in the bank account or whatever else you can do. There's nothing greater that can be said about your life than the fact that you are chosen, redeemed, and adopted by the living God. This was Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees who put together man-made religion. Their religion was not pure. Uh, it was vain. Listen to his words, Matthew 15, 6-8. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees' religion was not pure. It was vain. They perverted the things of God because they put away the word and implemented their own practices. So this is James' way of saying your religion is, is only pure and undefiled if it's truly for the audience of God and if it's truly instructed by the Word of God. So before we get to what we're doing, let's consider our aim, who our, who our audience is and from whose authority are we doing it so that the practices of true religion, true faith at work, is God's is true and not false and vain. See that? that, that that's an important bridge here for what we're doing. 
If it's not for God's glory and name, if it's not in obedience to God's word, then it's not true faith that saves. It's, it is religion. It is man-made. It, it's not pure religion. It is man-made piety. And James goes so far to say that it's worthless. Paul said it best, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So first hour, we were filled with our teenagers and youth ministry. We encourage our parents who have teenagers to that the most important part of their journey is to worship here. And, and then if they stay both hours, they go to our their class second hour. Um. They were here, and I just said, hey, even the chores you do. You don't just, students or kids, do your chores just enough that dad or mom will be okay with it. No, you do it better for the glory of God. You who work a job, you don't just do just what the boss expects. You do it so well that you're presenting it to the Lord himself. Parents at home and raising your kids, you don't just get the minimum effort through the day. You live that day. You steward the hours and the minutes and the monies and the gifts he's given you to the glory of God. You're presenting it to him. I I pray that the motivation of any of your doing is God. All of it. And not unto men. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. While James gives us two kinds of people in our society and church community to visit, care for, and love, it's good that we see the wider aim of the scriptures that we, the church, are called to care for, minister to the helpless, the afflicted, the marginalized in general. Not just these two subgroups of that larger category of those who are helpless, marginalized, or afflicted. Jesus is going to teach his disciples that true followers serve God faithfully. And one of the large ways we do this is by ministry, sacrificial service to those who are marginalized and afflicted. To care for those who God loves to put in your path. Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Speaking of people who are in prison, people who are starving, people who are naked, that we honor and serve God as we serve and minister to the afflicted, the marginalized, and the helpless. This is the point of the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, found in Luke 10. Ultimately, this is the application of the great commandment. Consider this, the great commandment, Matthew 22, 37-40, one of the places we find it. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We would show sacrificial, true love to others. And so I just want to ask you to make it personal for you today. Is your life marked by, known for, 
sacrificial love for others. Especially those who are afflicted by the pains of life. Church, our, our conviction for sound doctrine is critical. If you're new to our church, you will discover we are passionate about joining those who have walked for thousands of years in, in the true orthodox confessions of the Christian faith. And we're not interested in being part of the modern church movement that's just willing to say and do anything to get a big crowd. We want to obey God's word. We want to live it out. We see the greatest work of God happening in these ways. Our devotion to making disciples is critical. The Great Commission itself, the very name of our church, Disciples Church, critical. Our passion for authentic and accountable community here at our church is critical. As you get to know us, you'll discover it's a big part of who we are. But all of that is worthless if we do not get outside of ourselves and sacrificially love those who are afflicted and downtrodden. It is one of the loudest ways the church is the, the city on a hill to a watching community. And, and, and I discovered years ago that we hurt the church by only putting on organized ways to do that. So we're not really big on like, hey, next week we're going to go as a church and do this. And then two months from now we're going to do this. Why? Because we teach you how to be impotent that way. We teach you how to just wait for us to, do, to plan it. The, the, the true church, the people of the church, as convicted by the Holy Spirit and maturing in their faith, you use your gifts to find ways to serve and minister to and be in the community. And it really should be way more than once a week, once a month. It should be a lifestyle. First Corinthians 13, 1-3 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. Church, the sacrificial love of God is a part of our regular day. Is it a part of your regular day to serve those who are downtrodden? That, it, that it's an application when Jesus says that his true followers will take up their cross and die to themselves and follow him? And we're talking about tending to things and people that are not yours. Tending to passions and needs that are not yours, but others. If we are the true church, the bride of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, taking up our crosses daily to die to ourselves, to humble our, position, our, our positions and our, and, our, and our schedules, to go low to serve others, then we will truly be invested into regular ministry into others who are in need, who are afflicted, who are marginalized. And our bank accounts might be a little smaller because we're working a little less hours and we might go on a few less vacations and you might drive a little less of a nice of a car. Or, but, but I really honestly believe at the end of your life when you look back, you won't say, man, I really wish I would have just taken a couple more vacations. 
you'll be so stoked to have been able to look and say, look at who God, how God used me to love these, the least of these. To make a mark that, that affected people and generations and families. Now, orphans and widows is what we're going to look at. Are these the only two that we're supposed to focus on? Is that what James is saying? No. The helpless, the afflicted, the marginalized are many in our society. These two are specifically meaningful to God. We see that throughout Scripture. Let me, before I get to that, highlight a clarity here that many people misinterpret in this verse. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You're like, yeah, I'll go visit. I'll go say hi. I'll go sit in a room and play with some toys or read a story. Unfortunately, that's not what the word visit here means. It's not like a passing thing. Uh, a wave and say hi, a brief chat. It actually carries with it, the Greek word here carries with it, the idea of exercising oversight on their behalf, of looking out for or looking after. The Greek word is actually episkopos, which is the same word for overseer, the same word used to describe the office of pastor or elder or shepherd. Three terms used in the New Testament to describe what I do to shepherd the flock. What the elders here do to shepherd the flock, overseer, episcopoi. So it's in that vein that we are overseeing, caring for, involved in, walking with these people's lives. That's way different than, yeah, I'll go visit them for 20 minutes. See the difference? There's real investment there. Let's look at these two wonderful people, groups that James mentions here, orphans and widows. Uh, We actually see them highlighted together often throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a taste for this. Uh, In the Old Testament, Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. In Deuteronomy 14, 29, the Old Testament law called for the people to go out of their way to provide for the widow and the orphan. Isaiah said that God would not receive the worship of his people if they did not bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 1.17 In these actions, we, the people of God, imitate our Father in heaven, who is described in Psalm 68.5 this way, that he is the father to the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Let's dive into these two people groups briefly. Uh, An orphan is a child who doesn't have one of God's God-given most central needs in life. Parents, a mother and a father. The perfect design of God for us as human beings to be born and raised and matured and disciplined and readied for life is the work and care and devotion and discipline of a mother and a father. And this is truly one of the most essential needs in a child's life, life as they grow, as they make their way to becoming an adult. <clears throat> Current statistics 
show that there are roughly 400,000 children in the United States of America's foster system. These are children who have been removed from their parents' oversight for reasons of abuse, neglect, being abandoned, or simply their parents are dead or gone. They're orphans. Then these are just the ones we know about. Surely there's more than 400,000. Why? Because not every orphan is in the system, right? What's amazing is the worldwide statistics for or- orphans dramatically increases into the tens, if not hundreds of millions around the world. These are the ones the Bible speaks of when it mentions the fatherless. The scriptures are clear. The task of caring for these little ones belongs to his people, to us. The compassion that we have been shown in Christ must find its way to the little ones who have been displaced. Realize that they have done nothing wrong. It's their parents who have erred. The sin of their parents that has caused their situation or the death of their parents. Christian, how are you praying for, supporting those who care for, advocating for, or finding ways yourself to care for the fatherless in our community and beyond? How might you humbly and carefully consider how to show mercy to those who are in need in this way? Maybe this means that you are healthy and vibrant and able to have children. Maybe you're a young couple, but you choose to not have children by birth in order to be a part of the answer of loving caring for, and even adopting children who are orphans, like the Melendez's new couple in our church this last year. That's their story. Able to, as far as I know, have kids, but are choosing to foster and adopt children who are not their own. Maybe you have children and are considering having more, or not considering having more, as is my story. but you choose to invest in those who need a home and love and care for orphans. That's Jennifer and I's story. We've been doing this for four years now. We've had almost a little over 40 kids come through our home. Uh, that's the Heifel story, another new family in our church. They have many kids, and they're trying to adopt another. Maybe it's been God's call in your life to not be able to conceive. You've tried, and you cannot have children by birth. And so you invest yourself into the foster adoption system so that you can come to know and love and care for a child to make them your own, as the fosters did. James and Leslie Foster. Leslie did announcements today. Unable to have kids, they have fostered and adopted now June. Little June bug. She's amazing. She's a foster now. That's their last name. Or Paul and Jessica Williams, another new family in our church. That's their situation as well. Maybe you're an empty nested couple. Or you're about to go into the next few years of your life and 
you're about to be empty nest in the next few years of your life. And so you are in a position to consider. Maybe, maybe you're older. And so therefore, maybe because you're older, you can adopt, but you could care for in an emergency situation. Empty nested and older of age, but able to love on a little child. Probably 30, at least, of the 40 children that we've loved have been emergency situations only. In Bakersfield, all kids who are of the age of five or younger, Jameson Center doesn't, is not able to keep them overnight. So we get calls. And so we'll take those kids in for a maximum of three weeks before they're placed in a full-time home. So maybe you could do that and love and care for these children in that way. It's Jeremiah's passion to see the sanctification of the Lord in our church family mean many more of us are investing into the orphans and this ministry. And so I ask you boldly, will you prayerfully consider seeking God? Consider seeking counsel. Don't make these decisions alone. We brought the elders around us for many months and years as we approached this. These are big decisions that you need to invite people in. Um, but will you prayerfully consider ministry to orphans in our community in, in this way? Um, let's look at widows for a moment. A, a widow is someone whose spouse has passed away. The unique work of God, consider this, to make two people one, one flesh in marriage is like no other relationship in the world ever. It, it is unique in of itself. So then when one of a, two, of a one flesh union dies, ending the covenant of marriage, has a major, massive change in a widow or widower's life like really nothing else. Um, the bond that a husband and wife come to share is like few other things in creation. So what this means then is for someone who have loved and lost their spouse is a tremendous adjustment in life. Daily duties once fulfilled by the spouse, maybe never done by you, now have to be learned and practiced and understood. How to control the weeds, how to bake bread, how to do the laundry, I don't know, what, fix the garage door, deal with insurance, manage the car, It means for these people, widows and widowers, grieving the absence of a loved one from your daily life is a true process. The, the need of new routines and relationships and new friendships and community so that a widow or widower can rise up and thrive in the days and months and years that God has ordained for them still to live is a, a critical part of loving and ministering to a widow or widower. Church, while our widows and widowers, I believe, would likely say they feel very loved and valued and cared for by our church, I feel that there is more we could do to grow our ministry and care for those who are in this season of life. Helping to do and to teach tasks to, to them is practical and good. Walking with them in grief and showing mercy and care Befriending them and inviting them into our family gatherings and events will go a long way to say that they're loved and a valued part of our eternal family. If you're interested in helping me discover and grow ways that we would minister to widows and widowers, then will you email me? You can find my email, email anywhere, on the website, back of your bulletin, and uh, we'll gather some conversation about how we can improve and be more focused in this way. Let me ask you again. When it comes 
to ministry to the afflicted or the marginalized? Personally, how are you doing at this? If you're not doing, then maybe it's time to begin. And, and you might say, with what time, Pastor? With what energy? <laughs> That's what I said for a long time. I had a really good excuse, and I used it a lot. Honey, so my wife wanted to do foster care for a long time. I, I'm, God has ordained that I'm the, one of the shepherds of, of a church, of a local church. We have a big family we already care for. I don't want my kids to be those weird pastor kids because dad's like never focused. Like we don't need to make our family huge. This is my, my, idol, my thinking, right? Solid. I'm a member of motorcycle club or parenting our own kids and all these things we're doing. And then by God's grace, in preparing a sermon series, God's ministering massively to me. And I'm breaking down and crying and convicted, seeing Jesus' words that we are to take up our cross and die to ourselves every day to follow him. Convicted that I'm still raising my kids in a very plush lifestyle. And, and kind of in that false way, fulfilling the American dream, instead of showing them biblically what it looks like to die to ourselves and live out the gospel and give our lives away for the name of Jesus. And so since God's not calling me to Timbuktu to go to the mission field or do whatever, but I'm called to pastor a local church, how do we raise our kids in an environment where they're learning what it is to give themselves away for the gospel? And it costs them something. I can't take them to um, the 1% clubhouses that we go to. I, um, it, the soup kitchen experience, I think, is great, but it, it's just so momentary. So they do it for an hour and then go back to their plush everything. What's really learned there? What's really practiced there? And the thing that we love about foster care for us, for our children, is, is it involves them. It costs them something. They are excited when they come and cry when they leave. We pray together for them. We, we're a family. We're a unit. It's night and day. And it's a way that we're attempting to give our lives away for the gospel. And God's convicting me and showing me that we could do more. And uh, it might mean a little less of some other stuff, but we could do more. And so I told her, I said, okay, let's go. She's ear to ear. And we started taking classes four years ago and got in and didn't plan to adopt any of them. We've adopted Piper. We're now, if I haven't told you yet, trying, we believe that uh, we need to fight for Savannah. So we're now in that fight for her to adopt her as well. And uh, I, I wanted two kids, man. We're approaching five or 18 or I don't know. But <laughs> but I just I share that story with you because like I had all the excuses too. And God showed me that, that I could do more. For some of you, can I say this? I don't want you just to run out and jump in. You need to slow down and be prayerful. You need to get, a, you need to get counsel. We did that. You should do that. Some of you are in a critical season of getting some foundations laid. And so sometimes there is moments where you do a little less of this to, to lay those healthy foundations. 
that that's the Melendez's testimony. They actually started coming to our church knowing they would get good support for foster care. Hey, the pastor and his wife are doing it. They're all jazzed. And then like two months after coming here, we're sitting down going, we think you should stop doing foster care. And they're like, what? We got duped, man. What is this? And just lovingly said, There's some, we see some real needs to just work on some foundations in your marriage and believe that your foster care future will be so much better if you'll stop and focus on that. And they thought we were nuts, but they heeded our counsel. And uh, now they'll tell you is the right thing to do. And they're super thankful they're back at it. So pray for them. Um, so just to slow down and seek counsel and have prayer and have people speak in your life is a critical part of this. But can I just finish by just, again, are you empty nested? Are you single? Are you established with kids? Are you retired? What does it look like to give more? What does it look like to make a little less money? To go on a few less vacations? Um, to give ourselves to people in need? I mean, I'm excited about what God's work in and through us looks like in this church, in our community, and the world. Um, we pray for our missionaries who sold it all, gave away the careers, gave away the dogs. And have moved to unreached people groups to share the gospel, to invest the next 20, 30 years of their lives. Might die while they're there for the gospel. They're going to raise a generation in a foreign country that hates them. God's doing a work, church, in and through our people in a lot of amazing ways. I'm really excited to see how that plays out in us. Like I said, i got to finish this sermon next week. So pray with me and we'll finish in song. Father, we thank you for this time together. You're a good God. Man, you're doing amazing things in our lives. You're, you're shaping and molding and convicting and growing us. And I just love that. I love to see that the living God is making crazy, massive dents. Who are we to think that we're going to come to church, going to engage your written word, going to gather with your people, and the living God's not going to make crazy, massive, awesome movement in our lives? I'm sorry for how light of you we are often guilty of making you and, and the things of God and the ways of God that, Lord, we just, we'd be joyfully convicted and excited to just live for you, to know you and proclaim you with our mouth, with our words, serve and live for you, Lord, with our days. I'm excited to see the seeds you've planted in us today and where this might go. I'm just thankful for your word. And, uh, thankful for this time together. Hear us as we sing, as we worship you, as we establish ourselves in you, our, our, our cornerstone, our anchor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.